0: Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creasman.
1: And I am Ira Creesman.
0: And on this episode, we continue our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Chrono Trigger or Final Fantasy Travel Through Time as we're deciding to put it into a category of <laughs> uh, because we're giving ourselves an excuse to talk about one of the greatest games ever made as though we would need an excuse too. When last we left our heroes, they were kind of stranded in 2300 AD, several uh, years in the, into their future, and have witnessed the devastation of what they would come to see in a computer-rendering Lavos, having destroyed the world, leaving it in this pathetic, barely livable state, and our heroes, Chrono, Luca, and Marl, or as my brother says, Marley, which is how we pronounce it when we were kids, and We're all about multiple pronunciations here. We'll have plenty of those coming up on this episode. Uh, They've decided they've got to save the world, man. They can't let this Lavos thing happen. You know, there's very little. We'll talk more and more about this in in time travel stories. You think of the butterfly effect, both the actual effect and the film, the concept of messing with time being this very precarious notion. But our characters pretty instantly decide they've got to mess with time immediately here.
1: and it's worth noting that they don't have to like they live in 1000 AD and the day of levos will happen 999 years from when they're living so they could live out their lives and have nothing to do with levos ever again and they would be fine right they they i'm sure they could live fulfilled happy lives other than the fact that they know that the day of levos is coming i suppose
0: Right. The first time they messed with the timeline, it was to make sure that their friend would be born. They, they were saving their friend, and that's a very reasonable thing. Not that saving the world isn't a reasonable thing to want to change the timeline for, but it does give us a sense of that, again, classic Final Fantasy, though it's not technically, altruism of our heroes. So the last thing that our heroes had done was find some seeds, a symbol of hope that the people of this destitute future land can hopefully as i just said find some greenery and some vegetable and some life Uh, and in return ira (laughs) here
1: have a really cool motorcycle (laughs) You get the keys to the, uh, the what is it, the jet bike.
0: Yeah, and it, it's also another one of those funny reminders that you are way in the future and that a motorcycle in this world where nobody has enough to eat probably isn't as useful or valuable as it would be whenever from whatever time it came from. But uh, yeah, they, they give you a motorcycle which is a pragmatic thing and, and helps move the plot along a, l- a little bit of a plot convenience thing to help you get to the other side of the ruins so that you can find the wormhole and hopefully return home. You just learn that there is a wormhole. You got to get across the ruins. But on your way, you discover a really strange, random, and interesting character.
1: Yeah, you run into a a humanoid motorcycle guy. He's kind of a transformer, kind of a mutant, maybe maybe a cyborg. Johnny. He's got a cool mohawk and sunglasses and and a weird shaped head.
0: <laughs> right, no, I I, I think he nailed that description. Uh yeah, a memorable character to be sure and he just kind of comes out and he's cooler than school and he challenges you to a motorcycle race cuz that's the only way you're going to use this road and then this really strange mini game occurs and again it's Kind of neat in a way. We talked about the Millennial Fair being an early example of RPGs and having, you know, all these side games and different ways to play it other than just battle, and that becoming a staple of the genre. But uh, it was done first here in Chrono Trigger, and again, you know, one of the more famous ones from later on in Final Fantasy VII is a motorcycle race. They did it here first in Chrono Trigger, though. I gotta say, I remember at the time thinking this was super awesome. In hindsight. <laughs> yeah. This looks goofy as hell.
1: Yeah, it's again, fine for the time. Doing it again, it's it's pretty uh it's pretty simple, I guess.
0: It'd definitely be one of those things where if you were doing a remake, you'd get to have fun and make it look super cool and, and awesome and it would be something you would change, that you wouldn't necessarily have to keep it exactly the way it was. But again, memorable. And speaking of memorable, once you are to the other side of those ruins and you're moving your way through a factory that you need to get through again in order to try to find the wormhole that you're not sure where it's going to take you but you're trying to get at least out of 2300 A.D. You discover a broken down robot.
1: Robots are cool.
0: Robots are cool. And of course, Luca being who she is, immediately thinks that what she needs to do is fix the robot and see if they can learn some information from it. And Marl is concerned, is immediately worried because they've been being attacked by machines for much of their time here in the future, that it will come to life and attack them. And Luca responds that machines aren't capable of evil. Humans make them that way. There's a pretty profound philosophy and also an intriguing question about free will in that statement.
1: Yeah, I mean, if humans make robots evil or not evil, then how does somebody like Robo have any free will or agency at all? But once once uh, Robo comes to life and... Uh, He clearly demonstrates, or it clearly demonstrates, a a lot of curiosity, interest in in saving the future, um, interest in helping his friends. He's got agency and free will, and maybe he is unique amongst robots. But it's also worth noting that people aren't so dissimilar. Uh, Human beings, it could be said, are machines of chemical signals and and meat, and bones, and and, and we are how we're programmed, how society programs us. You know, what we find moral or ethical is as much about how we are raised as our own experience. So I would say that humans, and for that matter, mystics and reptites, who we will talk about as we continue with our plot discussion, also aren't made evil. You know, people or circumstance, makes them that way.
0: Yeah, I think there are a lot of interesting ways to read this statement. One being more of an Isaac Asimov, three rules, you know, I could program a machine so that it literally can't hurt us. Uh, And then obviously, then he explores loopholes to that problem as well. But I I think you could argue that you could have free agency within a set of rules like that so there it's more nuanced than just saying well if you can't kill a human do you really have free will if you can do literally anything other than kill a human i think you could argue that you do but that's maybe a conversation for another time i like your reaction or interpretation not that that you're not seeing it that way either but that you know when, when i read this again actually one of the things i thought about the way people talk about certain breeds of dog and thinking that they're more violent or more prone to x y and z and it's almost always the case that if a human being doesn't turn them into an angry animal they won't be that way and and like you said it's it's not that dissimilar from us as human beings so the character then and anyone who's played the game knows that this Robot is given new life by Luca. She fixes him, names him Robo. Actually, Marl names him Robo. His name is R66-Y. Those there, there's an inconsistency there because at one point it's R-66-Y. Ted Woolsey, Um, but
1: taking on Ted Luca.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Luca loves the name R6S-Y, of course he does, but Marl says no 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 Chrono, we have to give him a different name. They land on Robo, or at least you can again you can name him whatever you want, but in the common vernacular he's known as Robo. Sure. So That's a
1: bit like naming your new human friend Human, or maybe Hume.
0: Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> As a character more or less symbolizes all of these questions he will throughout the story have to ask them to himself how much free will does he have and what is his primary directive and is that something that he should care about and, and why should he care about saving the human race he's literally not a human and so um, we'll just continue to look at those questions as they come up throughout his story he's you know, his character sprite in the game, he's the same size, I think, as all the other characters, but when you look at some of the sketches and, and the anime stuff that would come out with the PlayStation version of the game, he sees quite a, a little bit bigger than our main characters, kind of a humanoid, but not, not humanoid in the way you think of like Data by any means. He's definitely a, a trash can robot, but he's <laughs> got arms and legs and uh, kind of a weird cute little but enduring face of buttons uh, he's, he's i don't know got big, doing a terrible size. job yeah he is quite cute kind of a cross between r2d2 and like a transformer <laughs> optimus prime
1: he's almost got a sort of uh engine on his back uh with like a like an exhaust port and he's got uh like well, he's got one, uh, one of his arms has a hand on it. The other one has some kind of a, I guess it's a blaster, but it could also be a tool of some kind. He's definitely robot looking, uh, but you're right. He's not very data looking, though. That is a an o- pretty obvious parallel. I think another interesting parallel is Vivi from Final Fantasy IX.
0: Sure. that Yeah, that's an interesting one. He, but he does serve a, a similar role in the story, and his personal journey is very similar which is odd because spoiler spoiler for final fantasy 9 vv's first huge moment is learning how limited his lifespan is whereas robo can kind of live forever right. but in a way that begs the same existential question fascinating stuff and we get right into a major question with him immediately because he leads the gang out of this factory to the next he decides to join because Luca fixed him and of course I would help you 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 fixed me and yeah let's go and you fall in love with him and his super awesome theme song and you head through the factory and you come upon after the end of a really difficult dungeon as I recall it honestly Um, it's kind
1: of those slime things are a pain in the neck Uh, and then you gotta like figure out the password and move the cranes just right and yeah I remember this being kind of a pain
0: But you get to the end of it, and you run across all of these other robots that look just the same as Robo, but they're so they are a darkish blue as opposed to his yellowish gold color, uh, drawing them in, in, in stark contrast. There's a whole bunch of them, and they stop you and pronounce, you know, flatly, as robots tend to, that Robo is defective.
1: Why is he defective?
0: His primary initiative was to defend this factory and kill any outsiders, and we would qualify as outsiders. Yeah. It would appear Robo has made a decision. And then. Can't even say it, man. (laughs) This is rough. It,
1: It sucks. It's.
0: The, and then all of the the bad robots, if you want to put it that way. But you can't, I guess. The robots following their prime directive, who have not been made whatever Luca has done to Robo, they gang up on him, and they just beat the hell out of him. And he tells your party not to save him, right? because these are his brothers.
1: Yeah.
0: And you just stand there as they beat the car out of them literally
1: yeah and then they throw them in the trash they
0: (laughs) They drag them over to the the trash trash. compactor and throw them
1: it's so sad and
0: and then we get not quite you spoony bard but with nintendo's don't swear and ted Woolsey's unusual knack for phrases that come at times like these luca screams out you cocky boxes of bolts yeah not terrible (laughs) so our party does decide to go ahead and and defeat the robots you know instead of lay down and die right and they pull their new friend out of the trash compactor Luca repairs him once again it's another sad scene it takes some time she works on him for a little while once he's fixed up they have found the portal they've been looking for this whole time they decide they're gonna see where it goes and Luca asks Robo what he wants to do what his plans are for the future and he you know gives her the proverbial no one's ever asked me that before no one's ever cared about what I was gonna do and you fixed me you've clearly cared about me for some reason I'm coming with you guys
1: yeah, good choice, dude.
0: Yeah. Maybe, though. <laughs> because then they all jump in a portal the God knows where and end up at the end of time.
1: Why don't you describe to us what the end of time looks like?
0: The end of time appears as kind of a couple of empty rooms surrounded by ambiguous floating space it might be something like you would maybe picture a kind of purgatory it yeah it clearly is not connected to anything
1: right
0: it appears to be floating in an ambiguous area in time and space in the room you first see there are a series of pillars of light and then there's a narrow hallway that leads to another room in the middle of that room there is a tall light post and leaning up against that light post is an old man
1: the lamp post i have always thought was meant to be a parallel to the lion the witch in the wardrobe it's one of the first Defining characteristics Lucy sees when she goes through the wardrobe into Narnia. I don't think it's meant to be much more than that. Just you know, this this is a portal. This this end of time place is a, a portal to other times and places. And and so I thought it was. I don't know if it was deliberate, but I always thought it was an interesting parallel to have that lamp post there.
0: Yeah, I like that. And behind the man, and and in the other corner of the room. There's a door. Yeah. Though you can't really see that there appears to be a room on the other side of the door. It looks like you walk through a door, and this is something we've seen in spec fic. Uh, One of my favorite versions of it is actually in the Animatrix. There is a short where the young woman is looking for her cat and at one point opens up a door that appears to go into nothingness or, like, into a glitch in the Matrix and hears her own voice echo back at her. Like, it appears to be a door into nothingness. You'll, you'll find out what it is in just a minute. So being that the only things that you can appear to interact with here are these pillars of light and a lamppost and a man, intrinsically you decide to speak to the man leaning up against the lamppost.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah.
0: Good call. He introduces himself as Gaspar and explains pretty quickly without needing much prompting because, you know, he's going to know that anybody who shows up in this place is probably going to be a little bit confused. I'm going to quote directly now. When four or more beings step into a time warp, the conservation of time theorem states that they will turn up at the space-time coordinates of least resistance. Here. Disturbances in the space-time continuum have increased recently. Far too many folks are just popping up here. I fear something is having a powerful effect on the very fabric of time."
1: This suggests to me that Chrono and his buddies aren't the only ones who are showing up at the end of time. Now, that never bears out in this game or in the next, but it does make me wonder if, like, there are other time travelers in this series somewhere that that our our buddy here has been talking to or knows about? Do you think I'm reading too much into that?
0: No, I've wondered that exact thing as well. And then I've also wondered if maybe, you know, it gets so weird once you start traveling through time. Is he just talking about other versions of Chrono and Luca and Marl or no? But I or, you know, as he just noticed, because there is something very strange happening with, the fabric of time and timelines getting blinked out of existence or being changed or whatever. And and we'll get more and more into that. But I've always thought that was an interesting line as well, because like you said, we're never introduced directly to any other time travelers, people who've been thrown through time and we'll get to that. But Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I think is really funny about this is that this mixes some cryptic moving forward, of the story, as as we were just talking about, with a very pragmatic excuse for a video game mechanic that you can only have three (laughs) characters in your party at once, and also why at this point in the plot you would be taken to this place where the more overarching story can come into clearer view, because you've just gained your fourth party member in Robo. So, oh, it was four of you instead of three like it was earlier? That's why you're here. Just a tight little excuse for that.
1: So, Drew, there is a bucket in the bottom left corner of this room, and there's a door in the upper wall of this room. Do you think we should go to the bucket or the door?
0: Well, I would go to the bucket. (laughs)
1: Right. If you try to go to the bucket, there's this little point of light there. And the gentleman at the light post, Mr. Gaspar, will say, ah, you don't want to do that, because it turns out that bucket contains the portal to the day of Levo's, And you are nowhere near ready to take on Lavos at this point.
0: Right. And then at this point, he explains that maybe you should check out that door behind him. And so you go to the door, as you would, it's the only thing left. And I think if you try to get into it before that, you just can't. But once, once you're given clear, you enter the room, and you discover... Speckio or Speckio. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Again, with the names. <laughs> this ancient being of... The Battle Arts, who is going to train you to be strong enough to defeat Lavos.
1: Yeah, that's helpful.
0: He also gives you a little bit of world-building lore here. He explains, again, combining it with a new uh, video game mechanic, that there used to be a time when everyone had magic. That will become important later. (laughs) Uh, He says, now only wizards have magic. But he makes you do this weird thing where you have to walk around the room three times Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and then he may as well say bippity-boppity-boo, and <laughs> uh, I think he's just messing with you a little bit. And then he gives the characters their magical, or he reveals to them what their inherent magical alignment is. Of the four magic elements, lightning, water, fire, and shadow. It's a little different than Final Fantasy, where earth instead of shadow, but other than that, well, in lightning instead of...
1: Well, in Final Fantasy, it would be the the original or the, the initial attack elements would be fire, ice, and lightning. And then sometimes you'll get earth and wind and water depending on depending on the game. But yeah, that, that it's lightning. Yeah, lightning,
0: li- water, fire, and shadow. And
1: shadow, yeah, 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 yeah. And Robo, he reveals, cannot use magic because he's not an organic being. But Spikio does tell us that Robo's powers do sort of emulate shadow magic.
0: So another little interesting nuance to his whole situation. Uh, The other thing that I think is really funny about this is once you test out your new abilities and you decide, yeah, okay, this is where you come to train and kind of learn how to do things, Spicchio, Spicchio ends the conversation by saying, stop by whenever you're in the area. (laughs) uh yeah what exactly is the area the neighborhood that we're in here buddy
1: so those pillars of light in the upper left of this tiny little map uh each have a time and place they will take you to there's only two or three open at the moment and the portal to 1000 ad which is where we plan to go in an attempt to try to figure out what to do next to stop levos does not take you back to Guardia. Instead, it takes you to the closet of a pair of mystic goblins in in a town called Medina, which is on the continent to the east uh, of Gardia's continent. It will become obvious pretty quick that this is a town of monsters, that they don't much like humans, that they will not allow you to stay in their inn or buy their items unless you beat them up, and then they will allow you to do that but charge you a lot of money. It's clear everybody in this town is still sore about having lost the war 400-some years ago in 600 A.D. against the uh, Guardia monarchy.
0: Yeah, other than the people, and this is, again, maybe a little plot convenience, but the people who just happen to have a time portal in their cabinet, Mm -hmm. uh, they are super nice, and they actually warn you that no one's going to like you here, but we don't care, and good luck out there. Uh, We don't harbor any resentment toward the humans. And I think it's a really funny little quirk that throughout the rest of the game you go in and out of those people's cabinet (laughs) to travel (laughs) through time just walk in the house excuse me i need to use your cabinet again and they're just cool about it
1: the other thing about medina is there is a town square as are in many towns and in this town square there are some of these mystic monster people performing some sort of a rite or maybe just chanting around a statue of a man with long elfin ears and a scythe. They're paying homage to their hero of the war from four hundred years ago, Lord Magus. They they talk about okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote the line. As soon as Magus' creation, the mighty Levos, awakens from his long sleep, the human race is doomed. And this is our first hint at where Levos comes from. It appears to be the creation of this person magus from back in medieval times and hey we know how to get to medieval times sort of uh there's a cave nearby it's a pretty quick dungeon you fight a monster called the hekren which these days sounds like a uh, a dog meme you ever seen those videos with the dogs talking about hecking this hecking that so you defeat the Hecron monster you manage to get into a whirlpool that conveniently takes you uh, back to your continent in the west and and tosses you back up onto land very near your town so you can go back to the millennial fair you know that that time portal there will take you back to 600 a.d in the uh, gardia region which at this point is what you want because you want to go back in time to that war between gardia and the mystics so that you can stop that freaking dude from creating levos In 600 AD, the king is ill. The king's not feeling good, mostly because he's got some major anxiety about this war between Guardia and the mystics. And it turns out our guys, you see how I quickly identify with the humans instead of the mystics? Already got my racial tribalism going on. The humans are not faring well at the moment. So we promise to help. If you go and talk to the chef, in fact, I think you need to talk to the chef to get the jerky, because uh, you're taking supplies out to the to the soldiers, you'll meet the captain of the guard. You'll give him the the shipment of jerky. He will ask for your help in the fight against Megus, uh, and then Drew, wow. you have a battle on a big bridge.
0: Yes, you do. Another <laughs> another connection of the Final Fantasy That's series. That's right.
1: We got parallels all over the place.
0: Uh, <laughs> and then. You're introduced to an important character in this story and another one with a fun name, uh, Ozzy, who is this big green monster looking thing. Again, like the mystics are all kind of monster people. He's kind of like a goblin or a
1: hobgoblin, just, you know, pointed ears, uh, green skin, very sort of a typical fantasy monster race.
0: I also think that there's two possible references with the character's name, either coming from Oz being, you know, just an obvious fantastical allusion there. And you could kind of see him fitting into the land of Oz. But I think more likely to characters like Ozymandias from Watchmen, which comes from the Greek name for Ramses II, who, you know, a puppet master. A a puller of strings and a maneuverer of politics, and that is exactly what we will come to find Ozzy is in this story. A world-famous quote on one of his artifacts reads, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair.
1: There's also a fun musical connection, but we'll get to that when we see the others, and you'll know what I mean if you've played the game. So there's a giant zombie thing called Zombor that Ozzy sends after you when he can't defeat you. You defeat Zombor, and the humans win the day, and we make our way to the village of Por, or Pori, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Again, say it how you like. Well before voice acting, though some of us preferred it that way, in the town of Por, this is where we first hear about a sword called the Masamune.
0: One of the things that also becomes clear at this point is that Magus, and we do call him Magus, and I've heard a lot of people call him Magus. Again, fine by that. Can only be defeated. In fact, not only can he only be defeated, he can only be gotten to because his castle is fortified uh, with like a natural, there's a magical mountain. You know, he's taken a natural. I to say this. He's taken a natural defense of a mountain and magically made it surround his castle so that you can't get to him. And the only way he can be defeated, at least legend says, is with the legendary Masamune. Or Masamune, Masamune, depending on how you'd like to pronounce it. As a quick aside, hang on. There was a person, Masamune, who lived circa twelve sixty four in the real world? I am talking about now, not in Chrono Trigger. This is who uh, this is based on. is widely regarded as the greatest swordsmith in the history of Japan. Though, you know, I am sure there are some guys alive today doing great work. He was alive from twelve eighty eight, or I am sorry, twelve sixty four to thirteen forty three. So long time ago, but uh, his name is oftentimes used in fantasy for great swords and uh is is used to a pretty phenomenal effect this was the first time i'd ever heard this word was right here at this moment in chrono trigger
1: yeah me too i didn't realize that the 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 word for this sword and the names of the characters who embody it uh, were based upon a real person
0: the Masamune is a sword that we'll see reappear in other versions throughout uh, plenty of other RPGs and, and plenty of Final Fantasy games, though I was always a little bit miffed when it wasn't the most powerful weapon in the game because Chrono Trigger made such a big deal of it. But I believe Sephiroth carries yep. Masamune. So, yeah, a, a great tradition to this name for this person, for this sword, and uh, pretty cool stuff. And, and and another thing that ties it to the Final Fantasy series. <laughs> Gives us an excuse to talk about it.
1: Uh, we also hear about the Cursed Woods, which appear to be where some anthropomorphic frogs might be hanging out. Uh, but some anthropomorphic frogs aren't really ready to join back up with a quest right now because uh, they feel bad about having not been able to protect the queen. So if our goal is to find and defeat Magus, we we know now that the only way to do that, in fact the only way, as you were saying, to gain entry to his castle is with the masamune and to get the masamune we need to climb the Denadoro mountain
0: so we've got ourselves a, another dungeon another one that i remember being kind of long the mountain and um on your way heading up it though it is at one point broken up by this very strange scene of a little boy all decked out in like night gear running away from some monsters his name is Tata, it is revealed. It seemed as though he was trying to climb the mountain, perhaps to, to claim the Masmune for himself. Uh, did not appear to go so well, but uh, we will run into him again, and it's an important one. So, um, just kind of an odd little thing that happens that you see this little kid running away. Uh, you make your way to the top of the mountain, and you meet two magical children. Again, we've talked about how Final Fantasy enjoys their magical children, Rydia or Realm or Vivi or Eiko. And here we see two twin, I believe, boys? Uh, It's not even necessarily clear or even honestly all that important. They're young, magical beings. They're twins. That's, That's definitely there. And they are named Masa and Mune. Or... You know, as we thought at the time, Mesa and Mune, because we're Americans and M-U-N-E would be pronounced Mune, but that's not really a a Japanese sounding, uh, that, you, that would not exist naturally in Japanese Mune. And so if we're assuming it's pronounced the same as the person's name, uh, that's why I've switched over the years to not calling it the Mesa Mune anymore. I call it the Masmune, because I'm pretty sure that's accurate. But this is the reason why, again, because Chrono Trigger was so influential. It was the first time I saw this word, and it was presented here as two different things Masa and Moon. So, naturally, they decide that they need to challenge you if you are coming here to claim the power of the Mune, and they become into these kind of, they look more like the mystics do, and sort of goblin y looking gold fancy, (laughs) as, as mystics are wont to do, I suppose. After you defeat them in this form, they comment that only Cyrus got this far, which is another important allusion to some storyline stuff that's coming up later. And they combine their powers, turning into one giant monster thingy that looks like this big golem, big belly. Uh, It's something that Specchio would take the form of later when you would battle him at the end of time. But a a giant, imposing monster that, again, uh, you have to defeat. You do with your your team. They remark at the end, hey, they beat us. That was fun. Maybe they'll fix us and find us a new owner. (laughs) After what was easily the toughest battle in the game up to that point. It was just a, a joke and fun to them. And then after all of that, they change back into their magical child form. More humanoid looking. And sort of disappear and fuse into a blade that is not a full sword. And Luca says it looks like it's been broken for years. So after all of that, you don't even retrieve the Masmune, you retrieve the broken Masmune. Congratulations. And then there's this thing that happens that... You mentioned how the whirlpool earlier conveniently kicked you back into hometown. At the end of this, you ride the wind back to the bottom of the mountain, and it's got this goofy-looking animation on the old Super Nintendo where it really just looks like your three characters get shot out of the top of the mountain back down onto the land, which would kill them. (laughs) But there's... There's, again, these weird little that... We talked about it in Final Fantasy V. If you were choosing to be really cynical about, you know, things happening just because they happen and you just have to accept a certain weird fantasy element to riding whirlpools and tides of wind so that really it's an excuse that you didn't go have to go back through that entire dungeon over again.
1: Right. There is some thematic tie-in because there's wind all throughout that dungeon and the Masamune... Uh, takes on it doesn't have like elemental properties and like it it does wind elemental damage but because it's so fast it's fast like the wind and so it, it does have at least that thematic element to it
0: right like with the four people stepping on the the right <laughs> the time portal there is a reason for it which is nice and that's i think one of the reasons why people really appreciate chrono triggers that it does give you Even if they're totally absurd or obviously maybe even a little bit transparent, there is a reason for it. And so, good enough, you know? So, back in town, you discover Tata, that young boy again, and he explains that, quote, some frog guy dropped this, showing you something called the Hero's Medal, which will be important again later. And he explains that everyone started calling him a hero once he had picked it up, and that's why he thought he could... You go to the top of the mountain and be a hero, but he admits that he's really not one and, and he was just pretending. Um and you and, and you feel kind of bad for this kid. But you sneak back over into Frog's house and you show him that you've got a piece here of the Masmune. but he says, I've no right to wield it. I didn't you know, he he's still sulking and brooding as knights who have failed their queen are wont to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But he does have there in his quarters the other broken piece of the Masmune. But who in the time of 600 AD could possibly be a good enough forge master for such a blade? Clearly, there would be none. But, and I don't know if you know this, <laughs> we're a group of time travelers. Right, right. Who happen to have the easiest path back to. 1000 AD where we're from 400 years into the future and we happen to be well acquainted with a pretty skilled swordsmith
1: yeah Melchor so so we do that right we go back to 1000 AD uh, we, we meet up with Melchor we show him the pieces of the Masamune and he says wow that's pretty cool but I gotta tell you guys in order to reforge this sword in order to put it back together I need this thing called a dreamstone. Turns out the (laughs) Dreamstone does not exist in this time.
0: And during this scene, there is a musical cue that gives you a hint to the importance of what is about to unfold and Melchior himself. And it is the track titled... Corridors of Time, which is probably playing behind us as we speak and will multiple times throughout this podcast because it's one of the more famous pieces of music in video game history. It is deeply tied and connected to this game. It is the overworld theme that plays in the Kingdom of Zeal. If you don't know what that is, we'll get there. But that's what it is tying us to this moment because you come to realize that Melchior knows a lot. How does he know about Dreamstone? And he's really surprised that you've managed to come back with the Masmune. and he's starting to realize that these people maybe... Like he's, he's no, He knows more than he's letting on here, and the musical cue gives us a, a clue into what's going on, and the deeper story that will eventually unfold with Melchior.
1: So at the end of time, it was possible to go back to 65 million B.C. before doing it as we're about to now, but there was nothing to do. At this point, though, now that we know that Dreamstone existed 65 million years ago, we we decide, okay, now we have an actual reason to go there.
0: And our characters just kind of deduce that. Again, they're really into taking these like, guesses and traveling through time to see what happens. Uh, they, they know it doesn't exist anymore, so they assume, well, it must have existed a long time ago. Uh, the Melchior said it was used for money at one point. But they travel back to 65 million B.C. and are immediately attacked by these strange-looking dinosaur creatures.
1: So it turns out these lizard people are known as reptites. Reptites rule uh, 65 million years ago, the world thereof. Uh, They've got a big civilization and they don't much like humans. And you might be thinking to yourself, humans, did humans exist 65 million years ago? Well, probably not in our world. Uh, Modern humans are thought to have emerged between four and seven million years ago. The, the fossil record shows variations on proto-humans, uh, Australopithecus and Homo erectus. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to draw from my archaeology and anthropology classes from college 20 years ago.
0: <laughs>
1: but we are, you know, we're, we're fighting these reptites uh, and it's not going that well. And, but we are rescued by one of the most badass characters in all of Final Fantasy. I mean Chrono Trigger.
0: Right. In the middle of battle, a, well, a cave woman, pretty clearly. She's got fur bikini, barely covering the spots that need to be covered, but she's got optimal movement. She comes flying in and starts drop-kicking and body-slamming dinosaurs. So that's a pretty cool character introduction, uh, not to mention her badass music that plays with it that totally jams out. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is Isla. Do people pronounce her name in a way other than Isla?
0: I don't know. I think that's the only one that I've heard. Okay. So I think I think maybe we're good on, the, on that one.
1: So Isla is a tall, broad, well-muscled, blonde woman is is really uh just extraordinarily strong she brags about being extraordinarily strong she's known throughout her tribe for being extraordinarily strong she is the strongest in the clan therefore she is the leader of the clan she is the most physical character you're going to get in this game and uh her strength is is a great asset to the uh player party
0: Yeah, I think subtly there are some really interesting societal comments being made there. You mentioned that she is in charge, which doesn't really make their society necessarily matriarchal. She's just the strongest one right now. Right. But uh, there's also something we'll talk a lot about, the nonlinear progression of skills and ideas. And it's made obvious that in a world more primitive, where you would have to fight every day to survive you might be a bit tougher a bit stronger not unlike the wildlings and fighting is pretty much their existence they're not as intelligent as other races or or cultures and and end up that ends up costing them in in several instances but and that's similar here with isla but there's an interesting comment that she is the strongest of the bunch, despite the fact that she comes from these ancient times. An interesting comment on how, you know, over the years, while maybe our characters have gained in intelligence or wisdom, they've lost something in terms of their ability for pure, raw, brute strength, which we know at times can be very important.
1: It's also worth noting that though she is strong and and is ready to... Uh, Use violence to solve her problems and even smacks around this guy. uh, We're going to meet Kino uh, when when she's displeased with him. She's not unkind. She she has she, she genuinely cares for the people of her village, the people of her tribe and these new friends she's just made.
0: Right. Which she does say at first she respects them because they're strong. She sees them fight off the other reptites and she says, you strong, I like you. (laughs) <laughs> fair enough and then she invite uh, she invites them back to eat dance drink sing and fight and this is something that she'll kind of repeat this mantra a few other times throughout she likes to eat dance drink sing and fight and other than fight i'm i'm good with all that i'm <laughs> i'm i'm on board i'm i'm going <laughs> to her party uh which is what they're about to do but, but before we get there i want to make a couple of comments because these are things we could have brought up before but i feel like they're brought into incredibly stark contrast at this moment one that occurred to me right away as you're killing all of these dinosaurs again back to the butterfly effect right it, that whole thing is if you step on one butterfly from a thousand years ago that maybe it will completely change the way society and i, I think it can be a bit of a stretch but I also think it's fair to say you really don't know what the ramifications are going to be when you go, especially even into the ancient past, and start messing with things. And in a lot of time travel stories, you're really not supposed to do stuff like that. We've saved our friend, Marl, from you know, a weird time loop problem. But now, just in 600 AD, we swung the tide of a war in favor of the humans... And now we're in 65 million years ago, destroying ancient wildlife with God knows what repercussions.
1: Now, they don't really get into it in Chrono Trigger, but there are sometimes in time travel stories, the idea that the time travelers themselves are immune from paradox. That is, they can't do anything that would destroy themselves by messing with time. Again, it depends on your time travel story. Clearly, that's not true in, for example, uh, Back to the Future his interfering with his mom and dad starts to jeopardize his own existence. And it's sort of contradicted here in Chrono Trigger too, when uh, Marley was, her existence was jeopardized. But there is a certain amount of, like, what they're doing is what happened because we know the humans do eventually win against the mystics in 600 AD. So I think that, again, I kind of like time travel stories that are a little more messy, that are a little less about all the... uh Predetermined things wrapping up in a neat, nice bow at the end, but that is kind of what's going on here. As we will find out, you know, a lot of the stuff that, especially the second time we come back to the Stone Age, that was stuff that was all going to happen anyway, or had already happened.
0: Right, and and we'll we'll keep you know diving deeper into that as we go. Another thing I think is really interesting, and probably mostly the result of just limited technology at the time. This is a Super Nintendo game, after all. It can be easy to forget that sometimes is the language. They all speak English, apparently. 65 million years ago, they speak English. Uh, the Reptites right. speak English. Uh, so right. uh, I think that's probably something that if you were to remake this for a modern era, that it would be smart. Uh, again, time travel things, though. Uh, time tra- Stargate uh, language plays a huge uh-huh. role in stories like that, and I think it w- would have been interesting. But it also creates for some really weird moments. We talked about Frog not quite doing the the old English correctly, but it makes Isla a very difficult character to write because most of the time she speaks in those very clunky, we think of like kind of caveman sentences, you strong, what name? And for the most part, they do that well, but there are definitely words she has to use to get the point across that just feel really awkward. Like at one point she says, we need to settle something, And a little later on, she tells Kino to mellow out. And I just kind of bump on those things because I I think you could get a little more creative and nuanced linguistically with a story like this.
1: So our characters do eat and drink and dance and sing. Uh, And then they go to bed. I I I think they've gotten a a promise out of Isla that she's going to show them to this, you know, she knows where this stone is. I don't think she calls it a dream stone, but she knows what it is. But... When we wake up in the morning, we find we've been robbed. Our time key, our magic wand, has been stolen.
0: Also, quickly, just the night before is where you meet Kino. We already introduced him, but he also makes it clear that he doesn't like you because you're outsiders. And also pretty much makes it clear he doesn't like you because he's jealous that Isla likes you. Right. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah. We are way stronger than him. Uh,
0: There's also some fun stuff here with... They don't make it clear again as Nintendo, it's really ambiguous, but I'm pretty sure they're getting drunk, and Luca makes a little comment about having been a perfect lady the night before, and it doesn't seem, but then she said her stomach hurts, um, and it doesn't seem to affect Marl at all, which makes me think that she's partied before and Luca hasn't, which is a fun little nuance. Well, you know, characters. those rich girls, right?
1: Th- those, those rich girls are having uh, pretty lit parties in Guardia.
0: You're
1: a rich girl and you're
0: gone too far because you know it don't matter anyway. Right. Uh, and to to get Isla to agree to find the Red Rock for you or, or with you or to give you the Red Rock, you have a soup eating contest that, I don't know, something was in that soup. That's all I'm saying. They, <laughs> they were partying hard. That's, that's I'll leave it at that.
1: All right. So uh, we have to follow the footsteps uh, in order to find out that Kino stole our time key, Isla smacks him upside the head pretty good for having done that.
0: Yeah, she blames the reptites because they're the natural enemy, but it's one of those reminders that sometimes we jump to conclusions and it was actually your buddy that stole our stuff. And that's when she tells him to mellow out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we have to go into the lair of the reptites in order to get the, the stone we need to reforge the... The Masamune, so that's what we do. Azala, the king of the reptites, is it a king? Is it a queen?
0: I actually don't know.
1: Okay, fair enough. Azala, the leader of the reptites, refers to us as apes and is certain that they will be able to defeat us. Uh, but being the heroes of this particular story...
0: <laughs> he <does> not. <laughs> uh,
1: did, did I trail off in the middle yeah. of a... The...
0: Uh, one of the things, too, that is also made clear here I was just talking about despite some of the weird uh, bumps on on the language stuff, it's also very clear that Azala has a far better command of the English language. Again, uh, speaks in formal tones and seems very intellectually curious about what these apes that are clearly not like Isla are doing here. And they make it clear that the reptites are the more technologically and intellectually advanced species, which of course begs the question, then where the hell are they? At this point, Azala calls on his beast of choice for the battle, Nisbel. Giant triceratops-looking thingy. Reminds me of Rocksteady from the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> you defeat Nisbel. You get your red stone, the dream stone. You return to 1000 AD. You march into Melshor's house. You put that stone down on the table And he is flabbergasted that not only have you found the two broken pieces of the Masmenet, but now you walk in with Dreamstone and you put it down in his house. And again, there's a plot convenience thing here, but it's still addressed where he starts to ask, where, who, what? And then he says, no, don't tell me. I don't think my heart could take it. So, of course, Melchior, with the help of Luca, because there's a handy project to be done here, repair the legendary Masmune and present it in all of its glory.
1: They take it to our favorite anthropomorphic frog knight and convince him to rejoin the battle against Magus.
0: A large part of that convincing is actually done as well by a dream he has that night, and this is where we get the story of Cyrus and the hero medal, and him being the bearer of it, being the most glorified knight in the realm at the side of the queen, and a fateful mission they were sent off on to discover some evil magic goings on at the top of a familiar mountain where we see. He and his trusty squire, Glenn, taking off after this, what we clearly recognize to be character called Magus, and uh, Ozzy is also present in this encounter, and I'm skimming over some stuff here. We we saw some stuff from when they were younger, but the long and short of it, really the ultimate thing here is understanding that it is in this encounter that Cyrus is killed by Magus, that Glenn is is turned into an anthropomorphic frog, and that his story is kind of set forth, and that's part of the reason why he feels so bad, him inheriting the hero medal after that, and trying to become a knight as an anthropomorphic frog, then failing, the queen took it that much harder, but he sees all of this and these people returning with the fixed musmune as a sign that he must re-enter the battle.
1: Our heroes make their way to the rock barrier and Frog with Masamune in hand does this really cool animated thing where he leaps and brings the sword down and there's this line of light and it crashes and breaks and the rock spreads apart and and we have access to Megu's castle.
0: Yeah, and this is one too where they put in when the PlayStation version came out cut scenes animated by Akira Toriyama, and whether it's the original Super Nintendo version of it or that cut scene, it's awesome to watch him take that sword and cut that mountain into pieces, uh, cut a path for uh, after all of his brooding, for him to get this incredible heroic moment with his music playing in the background. Great stuff in any version of it, always. Classic scene.
1: Uh, and then once you're through the barrier as our heroes approach the castle you get this really cool angle on on this castle with like a giant gargoyle at the top and the moon behind it and it's even if it wasn't dark when you went in it's dark now
0: it's funny you mentioned the angle because again when that scene is presented in more updated animated versions it's still that same angle it's the same shot it's just the hand-drawn instead of the pixel art because it's that classic and iconic the the first look you get at Megus's castle
1: so Megus's castle is a pretty cool dungeon uh it's you know dark and gloomy and and uh, very emo <laughs> uh there are three magical generals here Ozzy who we've already fought also Flea and Slash
0: get it <laughs> so, In case you don't, by the way Ozzy is a reference to Ozzy Osbourne The original lead singer of Black Sabbath Flea is one of the greatest bass players who ever lived For the Red Hot Chili Peppers And Slash is a pretty good guitarist for Guns N' Roses With an iconic hairdo Who had some of the best guitar solos of all time
1: So after defeating his three generals We make our way to Magus' inter-sanctum And here we find he is conducting some sort of ritual, presumably to create Levo's, that rotten bastard.
0: And our third straight kind of classic shot scene in a row when you walk in and all of the candles light up one by one, these blue flames that light a pathway up to where he is and then a circle around him really adding to the ritual. And again, a scene that is a cut scene in later iterations to draw you in even deeper to the importance of this moment.
1: So Magus is pretty powerful. If you're not ready, this is a a pretty difficult fight. He's got power over all the uh, magical elements that we learned about from Spekio. He's got shadow magic. He's got a really cool scythe. He's pretty kick-ass. Upon defeating Magus, we kind of assume that with Magus dead, he can't create Labos. But Magus reveals that he wasn't trying to create Labos. Rather, he was trying to summon Labos, which doesn't sound very good either, but there's an, an important distinction there. He says that Lavos lies within the within the planet, uh, siphoning off its energy. And we, having come here to heroically stop him, have actually interrupted his summoning spell. Interrupting his summoning spell causes a massive time gate to open, swallowing us, Magus, and Magus's castle all at once.
0: Oops. <laughs> yeah. This is, a, this is why you're not supposed to mess with stuff.
1: So, uh then things get really weird
0: (laughs) right up to this point you know it's all just been your your standard stuff but no right this is our, our characters are scattered to the winds of time and middle episodes end on cliffhangers that's it for this episode thanks for listening and thank you to anyone who's reached out to us feel free to let us know what we missed got wrong or should have mentioned You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Join us next time when we open the sealed door, discover a black omen, and offer peace to faraway times.